Okay, so spring 2021, our topic is think theism. So like I said earlier, we are discussing natural theology. This is broadly the product of, uh, or the project of demonstrating the truth of Christianity, um, starting from uh, general revelation. You know, if you're familiar with the, the kind of Christian ter terminology. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing. We started with an introduction last week, and this week we are going to start with the first argument for the existence of God. So as a reminder, these lectures are brought to you by Rafael Christie at Texas A&M. However, uh, the content that we discuss here is supposed to be thought-provoking and controversial at times. It's not necessarily endorsed by Rafael Christie or by Central Church or by me um, or by anybody. So it's just to engage in the discussion. So this is our topic for today. Does the universe prove God? Um, cosmological argument for the existence of God. So specifically here, the purpose of today is to answer the question, can, or basically does the kind of gross structure of the universe point to the existence of God? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what that means um, here in a minute. So, um, those of you who have been here in past semesters have seen this. This is what we call our belief map. So there are a variety of different types of topics that we talk about in Ratio Christi and in Christian apologetics in general. And uh, basically all the, almost all the topics we cover can fit somewhere on this, on this map here. So we have this kind of divided into two, uh, two columns and two rows. We have general theism and then we have Christian-specific, and we can have positive arguments, making a case for our beliefs, and we can also have defensive arguments where we're defending against some objective uh, objection. So uh, today and for the next several weeks, we're going to be spending our time up here in this quadrant here, um, dealing with arguments for the existence of God. We're going to start with the cosmological argument today, then we will talk about teleological and the moral argument, and we're not going to talk about the ontological argument. So I'm sorry. Is it because it's uh, just too strong of an argument? <laughs> so we, we can't bring it up. It would be Sam really wanted to do the ontological argument, but he backed out at the last minute. So now he's not doing it. So we're going to spend most of our time here. And then we will dive down into this quadrant as well and deal with a couple of these issues. And we will end the semester more or less going up here to... Uh, I guess we don't actually, oh yeah, the second bullet point here, historical argument for the resurrection. And this is important because this is kind of the traditional uh, set of steps that you go through if you want to defend Christianity kind of as a whole. So you start with giving some general reasons for why you know, a theistic God exists, so the God of Christianity, not necessarily spe very specific, but kind of a broad strokes, and we'll talk about what that is today. Then you can respond to objections to the existence of God, and then you top it all off talking about um, arguments specifically for Christianity, um, which usually center around Jesus for obvious reasons. So, if we were going, if we were in conversation with a Jewish person or a Muslim person, we might just skip the first two steps. No. Uh, it depends. <laughs> so you can skip some things for the, so the argument today. 
uh, very well may be agreed upon by many Muslims. In fact, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the history of the argument. It comes from Muslim thinkers, or at least through some Muslim thinkers. Um, but that kind of depends, too. So, but yeah, depending on which level of this somebody already accepts, you might not have to do as much work. Okay, so we're going to break the topic today into three general chunks here. We're going to start just talking broadly about cosmological arguments. We can describe what that is in a minute. Then we're going to talk about a specific argument, um, uh, kind of the background and history to it. And then we'll finish by actually discussing that argument in detail, talking about its premises, and um, try to be a little bit more discussional and have some back and forth talking about it and thinking through the argument. Okay? So hopefully this won't actually be too long of me just kind of bloviating up here today. So, yeah, first thing is cosmological arguments in general. So what are cosmological arguments? So uh, let's go back to our little thought experiment with Alvin the Atheist and Carol the Christian. So if you remember from last week, we used an extended uh, discussion between them to help discuss what apologetics is and what natural theology is and how to do that correctly. So we're going to use this again today. So imagine this conversation, and this is the way it starts. Alvin the Atheist says, Science shows that the universe was generated through natural processes billions of years ago. No God needed. And since the Bible teaches a young earth, the Bible must be wrong. So Christianity is clearly false. Okay. Some of you may have heard this before, right? I've heard, I mean, I, I took this bits and pieces from a wide variety of experiences that I've had. What should Carol say? What do you guys think? I'll throw this out to you before I give you some different options. What do you think? How would you respond to this particular comment? Um, I had this conversation last week, and I said that basically if a God was trying to enlighten, like say there's a God, if he was trying to enlighten his people, he wouldn't enlighten us specifically because people can't understand us because we're just beginning to understand it now. And so I said, like, a day is just a period of time, right? I think that's the generally accepted belief among Christians. It's just like, it's a poetic um, representation. Okay, so you're, you're responding to the second half of that, right? About the age of the earth, or the age of the universe. What about the first half? Like, so just because science is true doesn't mean God is false. Like, okay, so, so maybe that first half of his statement there isn't really in conflict with anything with Christianity. It's a tool that God uses. It's not incredible to him. Yeah, so this is actually an important distinction. So uh, I don't know if we'll get into this, but this is an important distinction that comes up a lot in these arguments, is that there's a difference between a um, personal cause and a material cause. So, in fact, uh, William Lane Craig, who we'll talk about at length today, likes to use the example of walking into his kitchen and uh, asking, uh, seeing that there's a, a kettle on the stove boiling and asking his wife why it's there, or why, why is the kettle boiling? And she answers, well, the heat from the flame is causing the atoms in the, in the water to enter an excited state, and once it hits its, uh, once the vapor pressure in the fluid equals the vapor pressure in the air, then it boils and 
the water becomes a gas. Is that an appropriate answer to that question? Yes. No, it's not. He's clearly not asking for a material cause. He's asking for a personal cause, which was the fact that she decided to make a cup of tea. So we'll see if that comes up later in the discussion, but that's a good distinction to have. So I've prepared here two different potential responses that Carol could give here. So here's the first option. The Bible teaches the young earth, but uh, radiometric dating is wrong, and there's a lot of other scientific evidence for a young earth, but since all science are evolu scientists are evolutionists, they ignore all that evidence, and so it's not surprising that you would expect that science would be in massive conflict with Genesis. Okay, we have one person who doesn't like that as a response. Great. <laughs> so for those of you who don't like this response, what, why? What are some of the things you think might be a problem with this? It's writing off people and it's writing off like the evidence that people have accrued instead of arguing about the evidence. And say, it's saying like they are biased and what they're looking at instead of like actually talking about what the proof is. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's appealing to motives, but then also it's just ignoring the fact that as more and more evidence comes in, it seems to disprove what she's saying here. And they're having to sort of cherry pick random pieces of other evidence that they can fit together to make their Okay. Any, any other thoughts? Okay, so obviously I, I agree, this is not the right response. Um, and there's a couple of very specific problems, some of which you guys, you, uh, you've caught on to here. Um, but I actually think there's a couple of really fundamental things that you might miss. So the first thing that, uh, that's a problem with this response, I think, is that Carol has accepted Alvin's claim about Christianity that it can't be true if the universe is old. So notice, Carol didn't propose that as a situation. Alvin, you know, the person that she's supposed to be convincing Christianity is true, said Christianity can't be true if the earth is old, and she just accepted that and then went forth to try to prove why that's not a, why, why the Earth isn't actually old, or the universe isn't actually old. So you have to be careful about that. Don't let somebody else put words into your mouth and then feel like you have to defend the words that they put in your mouth. Um, secondly, Carol has made some dubious scientific claims. So depending on how, where you fall on these issues, you may agree or disagree with that. Um, probably not the most important of these critiques, though. Uh, the third here, Carol has now impugned the integrity of millions of scientists, many of whom happen to actually be theists or Christians. So that's very dangerous. So ge that generalization saying scientists all believe X and all have Y motives, that's real bad. In general, don't, don't uh, take a group of people and presume that you can characterize them all in well one fell swoop swoop that way. And if your view of the world requires that a large number of people are all kind of uniformly you know, pulling the strings to uh, kind of work against you, it's probably not a good view of the world. Um, and lastly, Carol has also equated cosmology with biology by pulling evolution into the discussion. So what started out as you know, one kind of discussion now has to import all the other challenges with a whole nother field of science which was not at all relevant to the discussion um, and or potentially misuse the term evolution. So I think we can all agree, probably not a good response. 
Now, what might be a better response? So how about this, re this response? Actually, the evidence for the beginning of the universe is one of the greatest reasons to believe that God exists. For most of history, philosophers and scientists believed that the universe was eternal. But in the last 100 years, we have learned that the universe began to exist. So as it says in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, much better response for a whole plethora of reasons. Um, and importantly, regardless of what you think about the age of the universe and the age of the earth, this is a better response. Because you can grant the premises of modern cosmology, even if you disagree with it, and still make a strong argument for the existence of God. So what we care about here is does God exist? What we don't care about here is, is evolution true. Those are not relevant uh, those are non-intersecting questions at this stage of the game. Okay, so that setting the stage, we have now, Carol actually right here, just gave the beginnings of a cosmological argument. She is making an argument for the existence of God based on what we observe in the, in the universe. Okay, so many people throughout history have done this. Um, if you want a really long 300-page uh, treatment of the history of cosmological arguments from Plato to Leibniz, then you can read this book. It's called The Cosmological Argument from Plato to Leibniz. Um, and it, this is a technical work, so I actually wouldn't really re recommend it unless you're like really into philosophy. Um, but you can learn about all the different uh, arguments, and this is the resource that I used to, used to pull together just a handful of things uh, for, the, for this set of slides today. So what is a cosmological argument? Let's get a little bit more precise. Um, so a cosmological argument is an a posteriori argument for a cause or reason of the universe. So this, uh, what this means is that it's an argument that actually um, requires knowledge about the universe. It requires premises about the universe to be true in order for you to make the argument. As this is a, as opposed to an a priori argument um, like the ontological argument, for example. Um, what does this really mean, though? In a cosmological argument, we infer the existence of God from facts that are concerning the causation, explanation, change, motion, contingency, dependency, or finitude of the universe. You can basically think of each of those words there is a different way to formulate a cosmological argument that, that people have done. So I have heard people dispute the finitude of the universe. So if that were the case, then that may or may not be the best uh, argument for the existence of God then, if you use that version. Actually, though, the discussions we, we have today will be very, they won't reference the finitude of the universe um, spatially, However, similar arguments could be used um, to defend that type of an argument as well. So we, but we are going to refer to, I guess, if not spatial finitude, temporal finitude? Mm, we'll get there in a second. Okay. So here is a mishmash little uh, chart of a few dozen of the people who have created cosmological arguments over the last 2300 years. The first person uh, recorded that we have is Plato. 
Probably many of you have heard of Plato, right? So uh, the probably most famous philosopher in history. Um, and, and then, uh, however, his cosmological argument was like a paragraph from one of his dialogues, and he didn't develop it beyond that. Aristotle, however, his student, uh, developed cosmological arguments at great length, and so he's really kind of the main source of, uh, that kind of started this discussion. There's a whole, bit, whole bunch of different kinds of cosmological arguments, like we just said, and we'll talk about some ways to classify them here in a second. Um, but on this slide, I have grouped them a little bit so you can see some of the different kind of similar groups here. So um, these are arguments from contingency. These are uh, what we call Coulomb cosmological arguments. Um, these are all m arguments from motion. These are people whose version I didn't look up, so I don't know what kind they are. Here we have an inductive argument from a more contemporary person and a bunch of random stuff from Thomas Aquinas, which we won't talk about. So, like you Yes, you do want to hear more about the uh, Thomistic versions than there is an organization for something like that. That's true. And you may know, uh, you may have heard of Thomas Aquinas's five ways, that's five arguments for the existence of God. Four of those are cosmological arguments, and uh, three of them are weird. So, well, they're really all weird. You have to be a Thomist. To, to really like them. Um, so there are a bunch of different ways we can classify these. So we can talk about inductive versus deductive arguments. So if you're familiar with those terms, um, different versions of, of these have been constructed in those ways. Um, of the deductive arguments, there are roughly three categories. The Aquinas' stuff, uh, the Kalam, and the contingency. So some, some, sometimes in Rashi Christie, we will do a whole week or a whole day talking about argument from contingency. Um, so there's a whole lot that we can talk about there. Um, today we're going to talk about Kalam, which we'll get into here in a second. Importantly, you can also categorize these as temporal or atemporal arguments. And again, the Kalam is temporal, the contingency is atemporal. And this will become important here in a minute. I think this slide is out of order. Oh no, okay, so now we're gonna talk about Kalam. So uh, we just kind of outlined broadly a bunch of different cosmological arguments, but like I said, the Kalam cosmological, cosmological argument is what we're gonna talk about today. So, background on Kalam. So we just said there's all these different kinds. These, this is what the Kalam is. So it's a deductive argument, it's talking about the impossibility of uh, an infinite series of past events. We'll talk about what that means. Um, and importantly, it involves time. So again, here you can see these. These are you know, a brief history of the Kalam arguments. Now, you'll, you'll see here I have listed five people. Um, and this is one of the really interesting things about this argument, this particular version of the cosmological argument. So John Philoponus was an early Christian, um, like sec second century AD, I think. Somebody can check my, my dates on that. Um, so he was an early Christian who wrote um, a cosmological argument. 
that eventually morphed into the, the Kalam Cosmic. He actually wrote two different versions, but one of them is kind of what we call the Kalam. Um, this argument, along with a lot of Aristotelian uh, metaphysics, uh, was transmitted into the Islamic world, um, you know, so a few hundred years after John Philoponus. Um, and Islamic thinkers highly developed this argument. And there's a reason for that, which is very important. So if you look at all at the, the kind of history of the philosophy in the Islamic world, there were uh, kind of two camps of people. We had the um, philosophers, or the falsafa, something like that in Arabic, who um, were followers of Aristotle, so Greek philosophy, and they believed that the world or the universe was um, eternal, was you know, extended infinitely into the past. This is the standard view of philosophy from the time of you know, the pre-Socratics up to mid-1900, you know, mid uh, yeah, mid-1900. So um, now obviously the Islamic theologians coming from an Abrahamic religion, believed that the universe came into existence. So we had the philosophers and we had the theologians. Uh, they practiced what we call kalam, which is like a form of argumentation. Um, I, I think it is even come to be it, synonymous with like theology, right? It means speaking or talking. Yeah, we have our Arabic expert back there. Um, and uh, these theologians argued against the, the Greek uh, philosophers. So, um, importantly, the one on here named Al Ghazali, he wrote a book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. And his goal is to uh, basically refute the influence of Greek philosophy on Islamic thought. Um, and one of those was the eternality of the universe. And so he used this argument for the existence of God uh, it, in, in which he had to argue that the universe was past finite, that it, it hadn't existed forever. Um, this then passed uh, through uh, Spain, through some Jewish authors, and was reintroduced into the West, and um, William Lane Craig, who's a famous contemporary Christian philosopher, um, reintroduced this, or I guess repopularized it more uh, 40 or 50 years ago um, into our English-speaking Western world. So we call it the Kalam cosmological argument because Al-Hazali really uh, developed this to a high degree of sophistication, and you can basically follow all of his arguments today, and they are, are, are quite valid. But he what? has more today than Al-Hazali did to enter into the discussion. What's with the question mark next to Sadia ben Joseph? I didn't read the argument, so I didn't have a name to put onto it. So I just have it under good authority that he also uh, contributed a version of the cosmological Kalam argument. Okay, so remember our conversation with Carol the Christian and Alvin the Atheist. So cosmology today provides uh, evidence for the beginning of the universe. So... This is uh, really important. So we just talked about how the Arabic philosophers uh, or the Arabic theologians were kind of fighting against this idea of the eternality of the universe um, you know, 1,500 years ago. Um, and that they didn't really succeed. I mean, in the Islamic world, they succeeded for a while, but in kind of the broader field of thought, 
it was continuously accepted that the uni universe was eternal um, for basically all of history. This was the standard view that everybody had. Um, so much so that somebody like Leibniz, who was a Christian in the 1700s, developed the contingency argument, which was a cosmological argument that does not depend on past time because he believed that the universe was eternal, just like everybody else. Now, in an amazing turn of events, in the last 100 years, 3,000 years of human thought has been radically overturned um, by discoveries that we've made in cosmology. So I have a brief kind of history of this here, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in more detail later. But from 1922 through till the present day, more and more evidence has piled up that shows that the universe is not in a steady state. The universe is changing, and if you kind of run the video backwards, you see that everything goes back to a beginning point. That before that point, or prior to that point in some way, there was nothing. The universe did not exist. It was past finite. So this is a really, really incredible occurrence that this has happened, and it's happened, you know, in our era. So we should feel lucky to be alive to experience this. But the question is, how do we take this idea, how do we take the knowledge of cosmology and this idea of a past infinite universe, how do we make this into a formal argument that we can precisely defend and, and say exactly what we mean? Past infinite, what do you mean exactly by that? Um, that there is no beginning, uh, that there are an infinite number of past moments of time. Right. So if we look at the number of hours to now, that number is infinite. Okay, cool. We'll talk about what infinite means here in a second, too. So how do we make a precise argument to encapsulate these kind of nebulous things that we've discussed? So this is intended to be interactive, so feel free to shout things out at me. Um, I want to kind of have a discussion about this, make it a little bit less lecture and more kind of thinking through the argument. So this is the canonical form of William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument, which is basically unchanged from what Al-Hazali wrote you know, 1,300 years ago, or however long ago that was. So the argument goes like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. That's it. We can go home now, right? So as with any argument like this, any deductive argument, um, you know, this is a valid deductive argument. So if these premises are true, the conclusion is true by the laws of logic. Can't be, you can't escape it. It's impossible. Can, can you explain the difference between deductive and inductive? Well, so what I just described, that's a deductive argument. If you could escape the conclusion, even if the premises are true, that's an inductive argument. Yeah, so an, uh, yeah, an inductive argument tells you um, basically a probability or a likelihood. It says, you know, given X, Y, and Z, it's, we expect, you know, this conclusion to be true. You know, it's more likely than not that this conclusion is true. Whereas a deductive argument says this. I mean, or the famous example, um, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. Right? So that's a syllogism. That's a deductive argument. That's what this is. This is also a syllogism. 
So, um, simple argument. If all these things, if 1 and 2 are true, 3 is true. Now, as always is the case with these things, the difficulty is in determining and or convincing somebody that 1 and 2 are true. So, just looking at it, who thinks that 1 is certainly true? Raise your hand. You know that 1 is true. It's just undeniable. Okay, not everybody's convinced. What about number two? More of you, actually. Okay. Who thinks that, that three is true? Most people. Okay. So the, the question is, how do we defend these? Not everybody's convinced about all these premises. So how, how can we talk about them a little bit? So... We're going to start with the premise number two because there's some argument for it. Premise number one is a little bit slip more slippery, um, but it's a whole different beast altogether. So we're going to start with number two. So did the universe begin to exist? So roughly speaking, there are two ways that we can approach this problem, and we're going we're gonna to look at both of them. So the first one is through philosophical arguments. So prior to 1922, that's all you could do is philosophical arguments about why the universe couldn't be infinitely old. Uh, since 1922, we now have scientific evidences that also suggest this. So we're going to talk about both of those things. Now, importantly, under each of these categories, we could talk about dozens of different things. So we're just going to talk about one philosophical argument and then just kind of talk a little bit about the general evidence for number two. But we're not going to get very deep, so you can go very, very deep into all of these, uh, all of these discussions. So, is the universe infinitely old? If it were uh, infinitely old, that would mean that the past has an infinite number of previous moments, right? So, if you were to break up past history into days, there would be an infinite number of days. So, throughout history, certainly as far back as John Philoponus. These arguments have focused on um, the absurdities that result in thinking that you can have an actually infinite number of things. So that's, that's kind of the defining characteristic of these arguments is that you're arguing that the past has to be finite because if it's not, there's an actually infinite, of infinite, infinite number of past events. And if that's the case, it's absurd. And we'll talk about why in a second. Then wouldn't, under that argument, wouldn't that make God finite? Uh, it depends on what you mean by finite. So does God have an, abs, uh, abs, or a, a, an infinite number of past moments of time that are part of him or that he has experienced? From the time that God was born or started to exist. Ah, so importantly, in uh, kind of revitalizing this argument, William Lane Craig had to, uh, before he could finish this discussion, like this argument, he had to um, basically enter into the whole question of theories of time and God in time to answer that exact question. So we're going to hold off on that for now, but once we're kind of done with this argument, that would be a really cool additional discussion to have. We have in, in the past actually spent an entire day just talking about that question, so just to throw that out there. 
So yeah, like I said, basically throughout history, the, the point of these, this discussion has always been to show that there's some absurdity that results if the universe is past eternal. So um, to understand what we kind of mean by these terms though, so there's two different ways that we can talk about infinity, okay? Um, there are potential infinites, which any of you who have taken upper level math with like limits and things like that, uh, you've seen that little symbol for infinity. We use that in math. It's a potential infinity. It just means something that is unbounded. Something that can continue increasing forever. There's no boundary, there's no limit. Um, but that is not the same thing as this Aleph here. This is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's called Aleph. This is an actual infinite. There is an entire field of math called transfinite algebra that deals with these, these transfinite numbers uh, or actually infinite numbers. So if any of you have ever studied set theory, for example, you may talk about uh, the cardinality of the set of all real numbers um, or all, let's say all integers. All that, that is this number. It's actually Aleph sub zero, which is the first transfinite number. The and point so is these are very different. And so if the universe actually did have a past uh, an, act, uh, an infinite past, it would have to be an actual infinite. Correct. So, so yeah, it's not just this. So this is kind of a useful fiction for us. It just tells us that a variable can increase forever. This is saying that you've actually, you actually have an actually infinite number of things. So like you could almost like use potential infinite for like how many days will there be in the future? Exactly. Okay. It can grow without bounds, but at no point in the future do you have an actually infinite number. At every point, it's still finite, and it can grow forever, and it will grow forever, and it will never reach infinity. But this Aleph not means you've already reached infinity. You see, so you're starting to see where there's going to be some weird things that pop up as a consequence of that. So there are just tons and tons of weird thought experiments about actually infinite numbers and the absurdities of having actually infinite numbers of things. And we're not going to talk about any of those um, unless you guys want to. We can bring them up. But we're going to focus on one particular argument here that is called the Grim Reaper Paradox, um, specifically because it doesn't just focus on the math, the transfinite algebra stuff, but this particular version of this is directly tied to past events. Um, so it's a nice illustration of the absurdities that result from having an, an infinite series of past events. So it goes like this. Imagine that there are an infinite number of grim reapers and that you are an everlasting being that can only be killed by a grim reaper. Okay, everybody got that? Why is Grim Reaper trademarked? I was expecting the exact same thing. Because everybody uses it, but I wanted a trademarked version. So, so yeah, it's like that. Um, now imagine, for each day of the infinite past and the you know, infinite future, there is a green, Grim Reaper who is assigned to kill you on that day. So, so there's a one-to-one -one correlation. Every day, there's a Grim Reaper who's designed to kill, or who is assigned to kill you on that day. Okay, now, so imagine now, let's say it's Tuesday, January 1st, 1921. Are you alive? Why? 
because there's a Grim Reaper assigned to that deck. Well, more importantly, there's a Grim Reaper that was assigned the day before oh, that has already killed you. Right? <laughs> Good point. I didn't start today. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, why is this... Oh, my... My, uh... <laughs> my little nun isn't supposed to show up here. I've, I've kind of shown you. So, okay. Ask, here's the real question. So you're dead on that date. Which Grim, Grim Reaper killed you? First, no, there's not a first one. <laughs> yeah, so okay, I, I said it was Monday. So the one on Sunday would have killed you, right? No, but the one okay. on the one on Saturday would have killed you before the one on Sunday killed you. But the one on Friday would have killed you. So you can keep going back for any Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper the day before would have killed you, right? doesn't matter which one you choose. You know, there's always one before. So for all Grim Reapers that exist, they did not kill you. And yet, you are dead. So, okay. So you guys get this, right? No matter what day it is, you're dead. And no matter what Grim Reaper you look at, they didn't kill you. And yet, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead because the Grim Reapers were assigned to kill you. And yet, none of the Grim Reapers killed you. Uh, someone brought up the fact that we're dealing with two infinites, two infinities. One, the infinite number of days, and the other, the infinite number of... Who's annotating the screens, by the way? Let me figure out how to annotate the screen. Can you clear that? I mean, okay. uh, I, I cannot clear that, I don't think. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I do. Okay. So, um, what was the question? Was there a question? Uh, dealing with two infinites, yeah. Yeah, so yes, you are, and that's one of the weird things that happens with infinites, right? So any infinites, Aleph not cardinality infinites, can be paired up one to one. So there's an infinite number of days, and there's an infinite number of Grim Reapers. There's one to one correlation. Uh, you could also do this in a different way and say that the Grim Reapers are only there on every odd numbered day, so they're only there every other day. So the Grim Reapers are only there for half of the days, but there's actually the same number of days as there is Grim Reapers. Yeah. So there's a uh, there's another paradox there. We can just keep going forever and these weird things with infinites. And, and the point is, so this particular argument is saying that basically in this scenario, the Grim Reapers have killed you, and yet no Grim Reapers have killed you. It's it's a contradiction. What this says is that. This scenario can never happen in reality because you can't be both dead and undead at the same time. Right? You have a comment? It leads to a logical contradiction of you never really were alive in the first place because every single day you are already dead. Like it can be proven that there is no day yeah. in which you were alive. So but, it contradicts. But the, if we formulate, uh, if we formulate the thought experiment more carefully, what we say is that the Grim Reapers don't do anything unless they find you alive. And if they find you alive, they'll kill you. So if you're never alive, then the Grim Reapers never kill you. So if but the Grim Reapers are well, alive. What if I kill? Well, we're presuming yeah, that they're omniscient Grim Reapers. If the Grim Reapers, after a long day of work, decide to check into their hotel room at Hilbert's Hotel, uh, and, and, and they're talking to each other in the hotel bar, and they're like, oh, I killed him. And then the other one's like, no, I killed him. No Grim Reaper would ever actually be able to claim credit for your death because there was one before him. Correct. So the point here is that this results in a contradiction. And the argument here is that 
this demonstrates that this state of affairs is impossible. Like this couldn't happen. You can't have an infinite series of past events because things like this could actually happen. You actually have these sorts of absurdities. Uh, and in, you can think about this another way. If there had been an act, actually infinite number of past days, how did we ever get to today? And why are we at today today and not tomorrow today? Then, you know, the amount of time from the infinite past to today is the same as the amount of time from the infinite past till tomorrow. So why is today today and not tomorrow? You can't get here. You can't get here at all. That's the point. So, like having an again. infinite means you made it to the end almost. <laughs> like, it almost feels like getting to the infinite is like getting to the end of time. Like, I feel like for you to get to an infinite amount of time, you're no longer in time. Yeah, you basically step outside of it, right? If it goes forever. Like, there's no, you can so this is, you know, uh, specifically what we're kind of sliding into here is called the argument against, um, or the argument from the impossibility of forming an actual infinite by successive uh, addition. So if you're you know, adding things together one at a time, you will never actually get to the infinity. So we, just like we said, with time being potential in the future, it will never actually get to infinity. So it's even worse when you think about the past because it's like, you're thinking backwards, but something has to ground it all, right? So to reiterate our resident Russian's refutation, uh, he, he says that the contradiction only arises because we are pairing two infinites together, i.e. the infinite number of days and the infinite number of grim reapers, and that isn't enough to demonstrate. So, yeah, actually, actually that's not the case. Um, actually, so the, the original version of the Grim Reaper paradox happens in a finite period of time. Um, so instead, let's imagine that there's a Grim Reaper who is going to kill you, let's say it's 11 p.m. The, there's a Grim Reaper who's gonna kill you at midnight, okay? But there is another Grim Reaper who is gonna kill you at 11.30. And then there's another one who's going to kill you at 11.15. Another one who's going to kill you at um, 11.7 and a half. Another one who's going to kill you at 11.3 and whatever that is, 0.75. Happy. And divide, dividing in half infinitely. So there, there are infinitely many Grim Reapers who are going to kill you between 11 and noon. So in this case, we've paired a potential infinite with an actual infinite? No, in this case, case we've paired, paired an actually infinite number of Grim Reapers with a finite period of time, 30 minutes. Is potential, because like you're talking about like an asymptote. You're talking about like an... No, but we're saying there's an actual number of them. If you said there's just a potential number, or like you know some fine, large to finite number, this wouldn't be a problem. But there's an actually infinite number. But you're dealing with potential because you're doing halves. You're yeah, having something forever. You're doing an infinite number of halves. Okay, so, so that's, that's Zeno's that's paradox. Potential. Right? That's potential. It's basically a, a variation on Zeno's paradox. Having something forever is potential infinite, not actual. Infinite. No, so the, the potential. So so an infinite. It's an infinite series of cardinality aleph naught. So the number of elements in the in the set is aleph naught. So that's the definition of a, a transfinite number. Now, you, you're right. If, you, if I was going to divide something in half, I could never actually get to the end of that process. 
because you can't create an infinite number by successive addition, like we just said. But this is presuming that this just is the way it is. There are an infinite, an infinite number of Grim Reapers, and we're just assigning them times. You know, so we can write this as a formula. You know, for each Grim Reaper in, um, your time will be midnight minus two to the n power times 60 minutes. Okay, you can write a mathematical equation. For every single Grim Reaper, all of the infinite Grim Reapers will plug their n number into that equation. It will tell them what time they have to kill you at. So um, what this means is you have an actually infinite number of Grim Reapers who are all going to kill you between 11 and, and midnight. And none of them will kill you for the same reason, because there's no first Grim Reaper. There's always one who's half the distance from 11 to, to you know, the previous Grim Reaper. So you have the same problem. So it's not because you're pairing two infinites. It's, um, this one I think is harder to understand, and it is less of an analogy to, uh, uh, to past infinite times. Um, but it's the same problem. And the argument here, the, the, these arguments come from Alexander Proust, who's uh, a well-known philosopher at, at Baylor, actually who I would like to get to come here at some point. Um, and his point is just that you basically, you can't have an infinite string of causes. If you do that, it creates absurdities, and basically the laws of logic break down. Like it, you, it, it ruins everything. So it can't be the case that there's an infinite past. So you don't have to be convinced by this argument anymore, though, because, oh, go ahead. Before we had all the scientific evidence, if we had that kind of thinking, why, why was it so easy for them to think of an eternal universe? If, they, if, if, that, if that's the case, why couldn't they reject it just from, from a I mean, even Leibniz. I can think of reasons right now. I can think of reasons why now why it would still make sense for there to be an infinite universe. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, for one thing, it's what Aristotle believed. I mean, I, so... Uh, in looking back at some of these other arguments, um, this was literally the retort that some some philosophers had to people like Al-Hazali, like, "Oh, this is great and all, but you disagree with Aristotle about the infinity of or the uh, eternality of the universe, and clearly you're wrong because you're disagreeing with Aristotle." Um, uh, I think there are other reasons too. Well, I mean, what's weird is that eventually there would be. Uh, Christians who accept the eternality of the universe, right? Um, I don't think these arguments were well, I think in part because they require you to accept that the universe is not eternal, I don't think they were very popular for most of their history because, like I said, it was the theologians, not like the hardcore, it wasn't Avicenna, um, you know, that was giving these arguments. It was the the theologians and their writings didn't really make it into medieval Europe as uh, not like Avicenna um, or Averroes like they, they were the ones who really impacted the Western world and these are kind of secondary things that eventually kind of trickled in so um, I, I think there is too and maybe maybe this will be more important later but if you are thinking like about the physical universe um, you know, and especially if you're not particularly into, like, the book of Genesis, then you, you know, you kind of want to be able to describe the universe in simple terms, and if the universe is always changing, uh, you might not like that. 
but but I don't know. It's all speculation. Um, it's kind of though a core tenet of the uh, Greek philosophy that the universe is eternal, and if w once you break that, it breaks a lot of other things. So I don't know, but I, I think these arguments are strong. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why they weren't more widely accepted you know, a long time ago. So, okay, now you don't have to accept these arguments, though, because today we have scientific arguments as well. Um, so, we have a whole new series of, of things to discuss. So, um, contemporary cosmology claims an absolute beginning to space and time at the Big Bang. This is the standard Big Bang model, right? In the words of uh, a famous phys physicist, Alexander Vilenkin, uh, we can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. We have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Okay, so there has been a hundred years of development of evidence for the beginning of the universe. So this started in 1922. Really, it started in um, you know, a few years before then, as Einstein is writing his general theory of relativity, um, he's applying this theory to the universe, using basically an equation to describe a homogeneous universe and how it behaves. And he very early on discovered that it was unstable. So he would describe a universe, and that universe would either crunch down into singularity or to explode out into nothingness. So obviously, he thought, well, but the universe must be static and steady state and eternal. Therefore, let me add some parameters into this equation to help balance it out and keep it at a steady state. Even then, uh, it was balanced on a razor's edge that uh, could cause it to crumble, basically. Um, but in 1922, Georges Lemaitre um, actually proposed that based on Einstein's theory, um, the universe should actually be expanding. And he was um, young and not well known at that time, and when he published that, it was in a low-impact journal in French, and he didn't get a whole lot of traction or publicity from that. But eventually, um, a, few a few years, uh, also I should also note that Alexander Friedman also independently came to that conclusion. Um, but in 1927, uh, Georges Lemaitre uh, also provided the first experimental verification of this. Um, but again, he wasn't that well known. But Edwin Hubble, who you've all heard of the name Hubble before, right? He produced the evidence that really, really made people start thinking, oh, the universe might be expanding. Although, it took a long time for this theory to gain acceptance. So what he did is he looked at a variety of uh, astronomical objects um, that he could observe with a telescope um, for which he could estimate their distance from us. So there are a variety of techniques that you can use to estimate difference, uh, distance of different stars. And what he discovered was that there was a linearly increasing red shift to the light coming from stars as they got further and further away. You know, in distant galaxies and things like that. Um, so many of you have probably heard of the Doppler effect, right? So 
If you drive down the highway and a police car with their siren on is coming towards you, it sounds high-pitched, and then once it passes you, it sounds low-pitched because those waves are basically getting compressed or seem like they're getting compressed because they're moving. Uh, the same thing happens with light. Um, you just have to be moving really fast to move fast enough for the wavelength of light to change. If you could move that fast, you know, if you could run at you know, an appreciable portion of the speed of light, you would see that the things you're running towards are going to shift to a blue color. That's a higher wavelength. And if you were to turn around behind you, you'd see everything would turn red. So what Hubble saw was that the further away things were in the universe, the more red they were. Which not only means that they're farther away, but getting farther away. It means they're moving away from us. It means everything is moving away from us. And the further away it is, the faster it's moving away. Yeah, if there was something that's blue shifted, but in general, there, everything isn't blue shifted. It's all red shifted. So there may be individual galaxies and things that have some relative motion that will change that and make it you know, more or less. But across the whole observable universe, things are shifted red the further away they are because they're moving away from us faster and faster. Now, that was in 1929. Um, this remained a controversial theory that the universe was expanding, um, and consequently that the universe was not past infinite, because if it's expanding, it couldn't crunch down infinitely forever. At some point, it had to hit a stopping point. So in 1992, a spacecraft called COBE was launched, uh, specifically to study something uh, that was discovered in 1964 called the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. The story that's often told about this is that Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson were building a radio telescope and they accidentally discovered that there was basically microwave radiation, so that's really low frequency light that is just coming from all directions in the universe. Every point in the universe is emitting this low frequency uh, light and it's more or less the same everywhere you look. Now, um, so they discovered this accidentally when they were building their radio telescope. Uh, they were at Bell Labs. Ironically, at this same time, um, in the same town, there were a pair of physicists that were building a detector to specifically detect this phenomenon. And because Arno Penzias and uh, Robin, Robert Wilson kind of accidentally discovered this, you know, before they got their detector finished, they get all the credit, even though there's somebody else who's actually intentionally trying to do this. So um, you got to feel bad for them because these guys won the Nobel Prize for this accident, that, that there were some very hardworking people who were trying to also discover this. But importantly, like I said, in 1992, a spacecraft was launched to study this microwave background radiation. A second one was launched in 2001. And probably you've all seen this picture before, or at least many of you have seen this picture before. It's very famous. It's the uh, WMAP survey. Um, and uh, basically, this is a measurement of the cosmic micro microwave background from uh, across all points in the sky. So this is, you know, this is the inside of a sphere that's been flattened out, right? Um, and the point of this was that by measuring this, this tells us a lot of important information about the beginning of the universe. So just to be clear, we 
and all the space around us is putting out this radiation. Well, it's passing through us. So here, here's what the, the microwave background radiation actually is. It's basically the glow, it's a picture of the Big Bang happening. So like we are actually seeing the Big Bang happen and that light is redshifted so far that it's now a microwave radiation instead of a visible light. Hmm? The aftershock. Kind of. It's, it's the afterglow. It's the, it's the light from that event that is just, it was emitted in all directions and it's still just passing through all of space. All going in like the same, like is it all heading away from the same mm -hmm. point? Nope, it's going everywhere. Coming from every direction? Yes. It's just going everywhere, everywhere. There because was, the universe was exploded. just light, bright, and there was light everywhere going in all directions, and it just continues to expand outward, and that light is still just moving around in random directions. There are some like non-uniformities in it, where it's like certain spots are more intense than others, and they're using that to learn a little bit more about like what exactly happened during the Big Bang, but generally speaking, it's, it is coming from everywhere. Gotcha. Yeah, so you can see in this, it's not just all exactly the same color. So the, ba the radiation is very, very uniform. The variations are small, but there are, you know, notable, like reproducible variations in this that tell us about the way things were actually structured in the Big Bang. And importantly, this data here is a really strong confirmation of the model um, that you know, more or less, the the you know the the uh, standard Big Bang model, you know, fits this data. Not perfectly. There's all sorts of things with inflation, and there's all sorts of little caveats to that. But the point is, it's a well attested uh, well attested theory at this point that has been um, pretty well studied. During all that time, because you said they were slow to come around, Einstein had to take out this cosmological constant that was always making it, you know, steady state and say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not right. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it was a big, well, so the name Big Bang, for example, was coined by a famous astronomer, Fred Hoyle, uh, basically to deride the theory because he thought it was stupid because obviously the universe is past eternal. Um, but, and eventually he was won over. The evidence was strong enough that, you know, you, you can't really deny it. Um, now, there are a variety of ways that people have attempted to get around the absolute beginning of the universe within this kind of general Big Bang uh, cosmic history that we have discovered. Um, some of those are oscillating models of the universe um, or multiverses. Um, and a wide variety of other um, strange things. Go ahead. Big crunch and then like the... Yeah, so that's the idea that a universe would expand outward, eventually slow down, and then crunch back inwards, and then expand outwards again, and then just keep doing this forever. Um, so that was, I mean, that was an early theory, and then I think there's been multiple variations of that that have been posited, um, all to try to avoid there having to be a you know, a, a past, a finite past, right? Um, in the end, though, uh, a very famous theorem called the, the Bord, Goose, and Vilenkin theorem, or BVG theorem for, uh, in, uh, for short, um, has taken the wind out of the sails of, of that sort of work um, because basically 
what has been proven mathematically now is that uh, any universe that has on average been expanding throughout its history can't be past infinite. So there has to be an absolute beginning in space and time. With some caveats, uh, in general, they say that this applies to really almost any um, any universe that you could imagine. It doesn't have to be particularly like ours. However, um, there is an argument that would say that this doesn't apply to things like quantum gravity, which is a theory that doesn't actually exist. Uh, but if we ever did create um, a quantum gravity theory that maybe you could get around this. So the point is, right now, this reign reigns as king um, and that you can't avoid a beginning. Importantly, an oscillating model, still, this still applies, so you still have to, you can have a finite number of oscillations, you can't have an infinite number. This applies to a multiverse. You can have a multiverse, you can't have a multiverse that has been in existence from past infinity. Um, again, within the caveats of that theory, which if you're a physicist, you can go and, and look at what those are. Um, go ahead. Um, products, uh, why did it start? Ah, so some important uh, <laughs> questions here. So the first one, what happened before? So the answer is nothing. There can't be anything. Because when we say that the universe began to exist, we mean that all space and all time actually came into existence. So there literally is no before. If there was a no if there was a nothing, then why would why did the nothing stop being nothing? That's the question, right? That I mean that's the whole point of the argument, right? If it went from nothing to something, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Right? Ex nihil, ni nihil, feet, feet. Yeah, from nothing, nothing comes. So that is a perfect segue into the next premise. This is why we did them in this order. Does it make sense now? So everything that begins to exist has a cause for the beginning of its existence. So there has to be something that makes it happen. Now, does everybody agree with that statement? Seem reasonable? So here's the thing. This is hard to defend and yet easy to, to defend. So on the one hand, can things come into being without a cause? Probably not. No, because there's always the things like the reactants that cause it to come to be. Sure, things that we observe, but just in general, is no. there any reason why something can't come into being uncaused out of nothing? Yes. Why? That'd be absurd. Well, there's why? the, isn't there like the quantum thing where like from nothing there could be like a little ah, antimatter so and other particles that are quantum fluctuations? Yes. Yeah, you still have to field for that to happen though. Well, yeah, so you don't have nothing. You have a physical state of affairs that is such that it enables that to happen, mm. even if there isn't a uh, you know a deterministic reason in the in the sense that you couldn't predict it. Uh, it happens stochastically uh, if you take that view of quantum mechanics, but it's still not quite the same thing as we're talking about here because it's not literally something coming from nothing. Something coming from nothing, or was it? Right? Yes. That's the question. So, so, so here's the thing. It seems intuitively obvious. In, in our everyday lives, in all of science, we always, every time, without exception, presume that anything that comes into existence has a cause for its coming into existence. 
Otherwise, there'd be no point in trying to explain. Except the exactly. universe. You will never, with the exception of the beginning of the universe, you will never see a rational person ever claim that something popped into existence and claimed out of nothing. How could, how could the universe popping out of nothing be rational if everything else is irrational to claim that? Exactly. So you can't claim that the universe popped into, in, into existence uncaused out of nothing. It would be irrational to do that. That's so, also claiming that there was something before the, uh, before the Big Bang. If ah, well, okay. So, mm -hmm. so we'll, let's, let's hold but, off on that thought. But yeah, you're, you're thinking right there. So what do you guys think? So what if somebody says, well, this principle that says that you have to have explanations and reasons for things coming into existence, this applies to everything that we observe in the universe, but why would you think that it would also apply to the whole universe as, as, you know, as a whole? Why couldn't it just apply to the things inside the universe? Uh, because that means there are borders to the universe that that's saying outside of the universe. I mean, it could be a brute fact, but... It seems like you're not very inquisitive, then, or no, I don't know. You're saying the term outside of the universe, which almost implies that there's a border to the universe. Yeah, uh, the well, universe isn't a, a definite thing. It's just the collection of all things, right? Right. Yeah, so here's a good point. So, okay. So the universe isn't actually an existing thing. It's just a collection of a bunch of matter, right? So if this principle of, is true of all the matter in the universe, how could it not be true of the collection of all the matter in the universe too. So some might tell you this is a fallacy of composition, but it's not. Not all, uh, you know, sometimes you can make an argument if you use the wrong type of property that says, let's say, you know, feathers are light, therefore if I pile a truck full of feathers, um, the truck will be light. This is not true because if you have enough feathers, it will be heavy, right? Even though each feather is light. That's because the type of property, lightness there, um, is not extensive. Right it's an extensive property. Very good. <laughs> um, however, if I said feathers have an average density of one gram per cubic meter, and I take ten cubic meters, what will be the density of the feathers be? One gram per the same thing. Ten That's ten an intensive property. So it, you can you can make that argument. So yes, yeah, some properties can't be generalized that way. Some can. So don't let somebody tell you that that's what you call a fallacy of composition to say that just because everything in the universe has this principle that the universe should have it. In this case, it makes perfect sense to say that if every particle in the universe requires an explanation for its existence, that the whole universe should also require an explanation for its existence. So think uh, there's a... Uh, I don't know who actually originated this, but I know that William Lane Craig uses it. Um, imagine that you are walking through the woods, and you stumble upon an orange ball on the, just on the ground in the woods. Like You're way out in the wilderness somewhere, just an orange ball, like maybe the size of a soccer ball. When you see that, what are you going to think? Yeah, well, at minimum, you're going to think there's some reason that that's there. You know, a person dropped it. Um, you're not going to think that it's just inexplicable, right? You may not be able to find what the reason is or what the circumstance were, but it still has reasons. Now imagine instead you walk up to that ball and it's the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. What are you going to think? Same thing. I, I mean, 
Just because it's bigger doesn't make it any less needing of an explanation. What if it was the size of the moon? What if it was the size of the universe? So merely by increasing the size of something shouldn't make it less needing of an explanation. If anything, it makes it more. more yeah. Like I'm more concerned whether there's a, a Volkswagen-sized ball than there is a regular ball. <laughs> You're like, hmm, I wonder who made that. And Especially if this... You've never heard of Volks, Volks, Volkswagen-sized soccer? Oh, my God. <laughs> <sighs> so this is, a, this, is a tricky, this is a tricky premise. It really is because it's so obvious. It, it's so obvious that the truth of this premise is less obvious than any argument you can make for its truth. Which is good and bad, right? We, we can't pull out the, you know, the cosmology like we can for the other premise and say, well, the, the W map survey of the cosmicrode background radiation shows X, Y, and Z. You just... So great. Because they're obvious premises, right? Well, philosophy can be argued science with evidence. So like well, yeah, science is argued a lot. Okay, that's... I actually have a question now, now that I'm actually thinking about this. Would this still be as obvious if time didn't exist? Like, when cause and effect might not necessarily be coherent? So, yeah, so... Philosophers tend to think so. So, in fact, this is the principle that the, the uh, argument from contingency is built on. It's called the principle of sufficient reason. And like I said, Leibniz is, this is an atemporal argument. So he's talking about explanations, not necessarily temporal causes. So he's going to say that um, anything that exists requires an explanation for its existence. So it's the same, it's the same general idea. Um, so you don't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily have to be a set of temporal causes, but it definitely is harder to think about. Because we don't see that many examples of things that seem to be atemporally caused um, or simultaneously caused. Um, one example might be like the light from the sun is caused by the sun. But if you're not thinking about like the particles coming off from the sun, you can kind of say, you know, think about it the way an ancient would think about it. Well, the sun exists. All the times the sun exists, the light exists. But the sun is creating the light, not the other way around. Right? Now, of course, we can say, well, actually, it's emitting photons and those photons are traveling to us and they're impinging upon our eyes. Um, but if you think about it in a more metaphysical sense, right, it, both exist, but one is radically dependent upon the other. So that's a type of uh, explanation that's non-temporal in a sense. But yeah, this becomes a lot harder if you're doing it non-temporally. It's a different, it's kind of a different argument. So, okay. To sum this up, I think we've I think we've beaten this dead horse. What time is it, by the way? Okay, so we're pretty much doing it over time. So I, I, I think we're in a good spot. Well, yeah. So um, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Coming into existence from nothing is worth worse than magic. At least when you have magic, you have a hat and a magician that's pulling the rabbit out, right? To quote William Lane Craig. Um, and if things can pop into existence uncaused, out of nothing. Why don't we see that happen all the time, right? There can't be any law that, that dictates when things can pop into existence uncaused. If it's uncaused, there literally can be no rhyme or reason to it. So why don't we just see a unicorn pop right there?
Okay, so our conclusion. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, after all of this, after an hour, more than an hour, of talking about physics and infinite numbers and all this stuff, all that we get to is, well, there must be a cause of the universe. Like you said, the universe can't just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing. Yay, what's that mean? Not really helpful yet, right? But let's think about it a little more. What could possibly be that cause? We're in the matrix. Hmm? We're in the matrix. Okay, so we could be in the matrix, and there are like right. there's a, like a non-contiguous material world out there where there are people who have created everything that we experience. That's just nothing eternal, because it can't come into being; otherwise, it would need a cause. Yeah, so in that case, in the matrix world, now we have to think about, well, what's the explanation for the matrix world? And unfortunately, we don't know anything about it, so it's hard to answer that. I meant like more and not like we're bad. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I would say we can say it's immaterial because there's like just a lot of material things. Where yeah, so it can't be made out of the stuff of the universe because the stuff of the universe comes into being, into existence at the Big Bang. So it can't be made out of that stuff. So space, time, matter, energy, it can't be that. So why can't it be something that the universe is made of as well? Because it, it seems to me that it could still be something that the universe is composed of as that something existed eternally and just the creation of the universe was a property of it. So, but, well, but here, here's the thing. So think about it. To, if the universe, basically what you're okay. saying is that, that the universe is eternal. Not part sorry. of the universe is eternal. Sorry, the, it created the universe. I, I think it would be... I think it would be better to uh, actually explain my, what my personal cosmology on this is. So uh, my personal cosmology on this is that if there has to be something that is um, the cause of the universe and that has been in existence forever, then that thing would be energy, specifically. Uh, the reason for this is because we already have the first law of thermodynamics, which is energy can't be created or destroyed. So it's not like more energy is being created at any one point in time. And uh, I personally, I, uh, it seems to me it would be a easier assumption to make that this energy, which we already do not believe has been created or could be destroyed, has some intrinsic, pro intrinsic property of it that would generate time and space. So before the beginning, where did that energy come from, though? Well, so yeah. It would be the same place that God came from, is the idea behind it. It's, so that it's, an inherent, it's an inherent essential thing that then creates so everything else. Why did it... Um, so first off, the, the law of thermodynamics, it doesn't apply to the beginning. Right, because uh, that's the rules for our matter. It, it's, it's, so it's the rule nowadays, now that energy exists. Right. right. Yeah. You're just saying it's something impersonal? But, well, specifically, it's just, I don't see a reason to assume, or to me, we already don't currently have a reason to believe energy can be created or destroyed. It doesn't seem like the universe not existing would change that property. It, I mean, it might, but I don't currently have a reason to believe that. 
And so why would why why can't energy be something that ha that is the eternal unchanging force that has some essential properties to it? And part of those essential properties generated time and space. Doesn't energy so, depend on space? Yeah, so the no, first, I don't first think thing so. here space time uh, our current physics is going to say that space time matter and energy are all fundamentally the same thing. They're not categorically different. So you can take energy and it can become matter or vice versa, right? That's Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared. It's the equivalence of matter and energy. So when, that's why we say, when we say space-time, we're really talking about everything, right? Energy is not the same as space and time. Energy, energy is separate from that. Yeah. Energy matter is energy really really force times length, so it involves like if you're to, space If you're trying to separate those four that's, things. You're thinking of work, I think? If you're, no, it's also energy. If work is not the same as energy. Well, work, is, work is the same as force times distance, but that's 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 that's, that's different. But if you're trying to separate those four things, if anything would no, be paired no. together, it'd be energy and matter, and then space and time. Well, energy, yeah, energy and matter are essentially the same thing. So basically, an inherent property of matter, or you know, again, I'm I'm just saying energy because matter is but energy. Still what but still, let's let's think back so, to what the Big Bang is, though, right? So what all of the space, time, matter, energy in the universe coalescing into one point, and there is no time earlier than that, right? So in the sense that it's not being created, sure, you can say you go back to a, to a singularity where it's static, basically, you know, there's just no time left, like the, you're at the beginning of time, and the energy exists. Property of that singularity is the generation of space and time. Yes. So what that is, though, is self-causation. You're basically saying the matter that created space and time. Energy and matter were the unchanging eternal existence of the singularity. The singularity created space and time. But the, the problem is the traditional view here is that all of that came into existence. So, like, part of the beginning conditions can't explain the other conditions. Definitely not the, uh, the traditional view. Um, specifically, and this is where um, cosmology and physics and stuff gets really weird, but the idea of, like, like even the idea of a singularity itself, uh, a lot of cosmologists will say that, generally speaking, when, we when you come up a across a point where a singularity exists, what that is essentially saying is that our idea or our understanding of physics has broken down to a point yes. where we can no longer use it. Yeah, so technically what you can say is we understand what's happening within a fraction of the second, a second after the Big Bang, but before that, we, the physics breaks down. You need... Oh, no. So in other words, again, we don't understand or know that part. But and the, so point is, the, the point is that time, time itself had a beginning. So it doesn't really matter what space and matter are doing. There is a first point, and there's no time beyond that. So everything that exists is finite in the past. Right? So there's a, there is a first moment. There's a first moment where time or where matter exists and time and energy exist. A first moment, right? So think about it this way. So let's say you have the first moment, you have just the singularity, and then, you know, in, in a sense, existing infinitely, and then the singularity, all of a sudden, big bang. 
but so no, but you what you're claiming logical sense. So in order for the matter to cause the Big Bang, the matter has to exist prior to the Big Bang. So you have one moment where it's just the matter, then you have a second moment. Moment where it's just the matter it's and a second moment. Logically prior. Yeah. So. So no, but if it's in, so if it exists, right? It, it's a physical thing. You can't have self-causation, right? You, the and the matter is existing eternally, uh, in a sense, timelessly, right? But then all of a sudden, it exits that timeless state to create energy. So and I think there's no again, there's no. You can't say all of a sudden there because. Time no, so, doesn't exist. But but it changed. It couldn't have. States. It couldn't have. It couldn't yeah, have changed. It, it, it underwent so, change. So it, there was. It, a, there so was I think you can't say So the properties of the properties include the creation of time and space. So the properties of the energy and the matter are staying constant and staying the same. Properties don't include what it that, does. It only includes what it is. You have state right. of affairs so, one. State of affairs one. Matter exists. Matter and energy. State of affairs two, which is temporarily prior to the first state of affairs, uh, you have time existing now. So, this, but this implies two things: one, you have time before time exists, and two, uh, or two, you have time. Um, I mean, you, yeah, it's. I'm not understanding why you're saying I'm saying time is existing before time. The thing because I'm saying that it's in order in order to have a state. Of, so you have two states of affairs, right? And they're ordered by uh, a relationship of before and after. So you have state of affairs where only matter and energy exist. Then you have another state of affairs where time exists as well. Space and time exists as well. So if that's the case, that's by definition time. That's a temporal. Yeah, that's so not the alternative is to say that there's a, the first state of affairs has all four of them in there. Yeah, so you have all four already, so you can't have two causing the other. Be the singularity. Again, you're, you're thinking, I think, and this is just the problems of cosmolo cosmology and talking about states before time. There's not like a before state where. Yeah, but the, the point is that. So what I, I think is, that we've right? gotten a bit caught up in the weeds and we do need to end. That's true. Okay. Uh, so. so Let's uh, yeah, let's wrap this up a little bit. So, okay. um, the argument that we're having right now is actually also uh, analogous to the argument on uh, over what is God's relationship to time. So I said we can we can maybe talk about that a little bit now. I'm not going to get into it, but um, it's the same argument, which is why I can pull up some of these examples off the top of my head because it's a developed uh, area of thought. So, the point here is that. The point that we're trying to get to, and I might as well just go. Oh, also, I just like would, would like to point out my beautiful universe 3D printer up there. Please note that. Um, so, okay, so here's kind of the summary. So we all mostly agreed that universe began to exist. All mostly began that because it began to exist, there must be some cause or more explanation for its existence. Now, the conclusion we're trying to get to here is that in order to make it make sense, that cause has to meet certain criteria. So the cause can't be something that's part of the universe if it's causing the universe, because self-causality is not rational. Um, in fact, that's another thing that all of those philosophers of history, that's one of their first premises usually. 
Um, secondly, so it has to be basically immaterial. It has to have potentiality sufficient to actually create the universe. So it has to be powerful in some way. Um, and I'm going to argue, which we won't have enough time to defend this, but that it has to be an agent or a personal. That is to say that if you have a state of affairs wherein the universe doesn't exist, you know, this timeless state of affairs, and then you have a state of affairs with the universe, what can make that happen? So in causality, there's two types of causality. You have material causes. When you have a material cause, um, anytime the cause is present, the effect will be present, right? However, if you have an agent that is a, a mind, a person, causing something, that person has the ability to choose if they want to cause something. So if the cause exists eternally, the effect should exist eternally unless the cause is an agent. If the cause is an agent, the you can move from one state to the next state. But we can obviously argue about that for another hour, and maybe we will once we're done here. But um, to wrap up, there are a variety of resources here for you guys if you're interested in delving into this topic uh, more deeply, starting with the more the easier level. In fact, there's an, a level even before this, which is a book called On Guard by William Lane Craig. You'll notice that all these books are by William Lane Craig because um, he's the guy who kind of started this argument up again 50 years ago. And uh, the kind of second level book is called Reasonable Faith. Again, j uh, these arguments, are, or this argument is just one chapter in these books. Um, it covers many different arguments, but he goes through all this in a little bit more detail than what we've done. If you want to go um, to a short but, like, legit philosophical treatment of the question, there's a chapter in this book, The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, um, this is like real theology, t or uh, real philosophy TM, uh, hardcore. Um, again, not long, it's just one chapter, but much greater detail than, uh, and, it, and this chapter is also co-authored by a physicist, so it has more accurate physics stuff in it. Um, third one, William, William Lane Craig wrote an entire book on this argument. So if you want it in great, great detail, although I don't know how old this book is now. You might have to read multiple of these to get the up-to-date date. And if you don't like to read, there are some nice videos on YouTube from Dr. Craig videos. Um, and there's a playlist of uh, debates and uh, little Q&A sessions on it. So you can hear, uh, again, some like real philosophers and physicists actually interact with this question. Uh, and if you want to hear a... a kind of longer, you know, multi-hour discussion of this on his Defenders podcast. There will probably be several episodes devoted to this, going through each of the premises and, and multiple arguments for each of them and some Q&A and stuff like that. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, thank you guys who are here in person. Um, I guess we can uh, stick around and address any more questions if you guys have more questions as Sam starts to figure out how to pack things up.